I like to read Reader's Digest, and I'm especially focused when Reader's Digest has a section on dumb criminals. I always seem to go towards the dumb criminal section every time. I don't know. It's just fitting for my mentality, I guess. But here's just a couple samples of dumb criminals lately. Uh, Two men were waiting in line at a coffee shop to pay their bill. A man cut in front of them. He threw a drink in the face of the clerk behind the counter and demanded all the money in the register. Temporarily surprised, the men behind him quickly recovered and handcuffed the crook. (laughs) Apparently in his rush, the criminal did not recognize that the two police officers were right there in full uniform. (laughs) Dumb criminals. How about this one? Uh, recently, uh, recently, a woman in California was stopped at a DUI checkpoint, and she was obviously soused. And she offered up this very helpful information to the police officer. She, she said, my husband's right behind me, and he's even drunker than I am. <laughs> Thanks, dear. Thank you very much, dear. That's great. There was a guy in Scotland who was picked up for swiping a bottle of vodka from a liquor store, and it didn't take police long to find him because his name and phone number were left with the clerk at the counter. She was so attracted that he asked her out for a date and gave his contact information. Yeah, that. And then there's this one that happened in Seattle. There was a man who was attempting to siphon gas from an RV parked on a street. He got a lot more than he bargained for because when police arrived at the scene, they found an ill man curled up on the ground next to the RV near a pile of sewage. You're probably ahead of me, right? You're probably ahead of me. Uh, He said he was trying to steal gasoline and he put his hose into the RV's sewage tank by mistake. Yeah, I hope you had your breakfast this morning. Yikes. Then there was this 19-year-old college student. His head was kind of out of joint. His, His face was bloodied and nose was broken. He was struck by a Conrail freight train. He was told, he told police that he was trying to see how close he could get his head to the moving train without getting hit. I'm sorry to say that this fellow was from Ohio. Yes. You got to take it when it comes your way, but that's the truth. A kid from Bowling Green State University was trying to do that. Wow. Man, oh man. It takes all kinds, doesn't it? Don't let that be you. As we conclude our Summer in the Psalms series today, I'm focusing on Psalm 53, which is actually almost identical to Psalm 14. That might come as a surprise to you, but you might want your Bible open to each one. You wonder why they're almost repeated there. Both were composed by David to give encouragement to the nation because they were facing some kind of impending invasion from a foreign army. It doesn't say how or who or why, but something is happening in their history that goes unmentioned. And David focuses on the enemy and how godless they are and how 
They have no shot because they're enemies of God. They're opposing God. And the Bible categorizes people like that as fools, not not dumb criminals, not people who are unintelligent, but just people who choose to ignore God. That's what it's about. It's just people who choose to ignore God. You know better. The evidence is there. You know better than that, but you just choose to go your own way. And we don't use the word fool a lot in our culture anymore. It's kind of harsh for 2021. But David isn't talking about, uh, again, people with a low IQ. He's talking about the condition of people's hearts. They have rejected their Creator. He's talking about people who have just chosen to walk away from God and go their own selfish way. So, Psalm 51, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Then David gives the commentary, They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. This is the the attitude, this is the condition of the enemy that is coming to invade the nation. It is very hard to imagine how anyone who's been on the planet for very long could deny the existence of God. Uh, It happens. uh, How a man with limited knowledge and limited years of experience can arrive at this conclusion. You've only been here, what, 80 years, 60 years, 40 years. You know everything. You know enough to say, absolutely, there is no God. It it just uh, it presumes a lot. It presumes that you know everything. It presumes that you have examined every piece of evidence and arrived at this conclusion. It usually isn't based on science or logic. It's based more on a moral decision because... If there's a God, then I'm accountable to Him. So it's easier for me to say there is no God, so I'm accountable to nobody. That's a pretty good way to work. The fool says there's no God for me, so I can choose how I want to live. I read an astounding article in the New York Times, copied, uh, reprinted by Newsweek magazine recently. Harvard University has elected an atheist as their president of its chaplain's organization. Um, You'll remember that Harvard was started in the 1630s to train ministers to supply churches in New England. And their motto was, and still is, uh, truth for Christ and the church. Truth for Christ and the church. That's their motto. Okay. So the new president has a big job. He coordinates the activities of more than 40 different university chaplains on campus who lead Christians and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and anything that can come under the heading of a religious community. That's his job is to coordinate all those efforts. And the article stated, there's a rising group of people who no longer identify with any religious tradition, but still experience a real need for conversation and support around what it means to be a good human and live an ethical life. We teach students about the progressive movement that centers people's relationships with one another instead of with God. Now, I know that each one of you would like to have a conversation with that chaplain. You'd probably like to have a cup of coffee with that guy and learn more about him and 
Maybe share some of your opinions. One student said President Epstein's leadership isn't about theology. It's about cooperation between people of different faiths. Mr. Epstein himself says, we don't look to God for answers. We are each other's answers. Hmm. Well, he's certainly not a dumb criminal, and he's certainly not unintelligent. He could do very well on an SAT uh, test, couldn't he? he? There's no problem with his intelligence. He, like most chaplains, meets with students who are having issues in life, struggling with uh, perhaps some problem at home or you know, some issue with their roommates or a professor or family feuds or uh, just the drama of college life. He meets with them. That's cool. But here's what the article says. Non-religiosity is on the rise far beyond the confines of Harvard. It's the fastest growing religious preference in the country. According to Pew Research, more than 20% identify as atheist, agnostic, non-religious, called nuns. You probably heard that called nuns, including four out of ten millennials. Well, I don't know. There's a few reasons why people reject God in in an academic setting. They, the article says that they don't trust institutions anymore. There's this growing skepticism of religion based on what happened at September 11. Um, if that's what religion does, I don't want any part of anything. And uh, there's a shift away from traditional family. And some of the traditional family's traditions are going to church. I want to be away from that. I don't want to do that. So here's how it concludes. Mr. Epstein's community has tapped into the growing desire for meaning without faith in God. Being able to find values and rituals, but not having to believe in magic. That's a powerful thing says A.J. Krumer, who served as the president of Harvard's humanist graduate student group that Mr. Mr. Epstein advised. So, if you're here today worshiping an invisible God, this guy would say that you believe in magic. How does that sit with you? And so David, David has that kind of attitude like, oh yeah, let me tell you about God. This is the godless. They say there's no God. They're, they're vile. They're wicked. Let me, let me just tell you about them. And these are, uh, the professor at Harvard is intelligent. He's nice. But like Psalm 53 says, he's ignored God and chosen to go his own way. Um, C.S. Lewis was an atheist at one point in his life. Maybe that surprises you. His main reason for being an atheist, he said at that time in his life, was that uh, how could a how could a just God allow all the injustice in the world? It's just not right. Uh, why is there cancer? Why is there war? Why is there poverty? This is wrong. If there's a God in charge, He would not allow that to happen. And then he, in his own thinking, started to wonder, where did the idea of justice come in the first place? He said, man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What I quote him, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And he realized his case for atheism was too simple. If the idea of injustice in the world was his own idea, that would destroy his argument. 
injustice in the world pointed to a God who set the standard for justice. I mean, just have a conversation with people who say they don't believe in God. They want to go their own way. Oh yeah, then why do you stop at a stop sign? If there's no God, you can do whatever you want. Why do you stop? You should just go on through it. It's all about you, right? Well, no, it's not. I think about other Why do you think about other people? It's just like that. Why is murder wrong? Why are you upset when someone steals something from you? Do you steal from other people? Why not? Who said that's wrong? So you ask, where did these standards come from? And I would argue that they're written into our DNA. There's something in us that tells us right from wrong, whether there's a rule about it or not. But in his heart, the fool has eliminated God, allowing him, in David's case, as he describes him, to be corrupt and vile. These were the enemy forces that were threatening Israel. John John 3.20 explains it this way. For everyone participating in evil hates the light does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. So it's just really much easier to say there is no God and I can do what I want. But if there is a God, then I am accountable to Him. More often than not, as you have conversations with people, you find that acknowledging God is more a matter of the heart rather than the head. Uh, if faith was only a matter of the head, then you could mount up a big argument for all the evidence for God and all the logic and all the science, and that would be the route to go. But did you notice how David said that? The fool has said in his heart. He didn't say it in his head. He said in his heart. There's something wrong with his heart. Let's play suppose for a minute. Suppose you drew out your cell phone and began to work on it. And your friend comes up to you, as described in Psalm 53, the friend who is the fool, 53.1. He says, that's a really cool phone. Who made that phone? I like your phone. And you say, nobody made it. And the friend says, that's ridiculous. Somebody had to make that phone. You say, nope, nope. Nobody. Nobody made that phone. Your friend says, look at the phone. The technology, the design. Look at that. You're telling me that phone just fell together? Yep. It just fell together. Isn't that amazing? And your friend says, I think you've lost your marbles. Right? It's, it's not a matter of the... The head is that reasonable thinkers would agree the complex design of the universe points to a designer. That's in Psalm 19 and other places in David's writings and in the Scriptures. I love coming to our church because we have many people from a variety of backgrounds that have advanced degrees and very technical jobs. And they have examine the evidence and they have put their faith in the invisible God and have made themselves accountable to Him. It is amazing just to have conversations with you all. Uh, The fool 
has ignored the evidence to justify his lifestyle. There is no God for me. I'll choose the way I want to go. But so many of you have encouraged me just because you've studied deeply into your field. And instead of rejecting evidence for the Lord, it just confirms even more your faith in the designer. So Charles Spurgeon challenged me and challenged us like this. The fool has said in his heart, it's a matter of the heart. He said it like this, let the preacher aim at the heart and share the all-conquering love of Jesus and he will, by God's grace, win more doubters to the faith than a hundred best debaters who aim their argument at the head. Hmm. It's a matter of the heart. When mankind denies God, the result Verse 1 says, is corruption. They're corrupt. They're vile. Uh, it's an interesting word, corrupt. It means contaminated or marred or spoiled or decayed. It's a man who has fallen and can't get up. His first instinct is self. And then when he gets to the end of the line, he realizes self can't fix his issues. It's about his agenda, his reputation, his comfort. But at the end of the line, it's not enough. So we get to verse 2 and 3. This is God's assessment of this enemy who is invading Israel. David writes, God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone is turned away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not Not even one. And so this is the mindset of the world around us. But they don't escape the Lord. He knows what they're thinking. He's been through this before with other generations. No one's going to outsmart him or defeat him. He's watching. His assessment is, you're in big trouble, mister. You remember that the Lord was watching when the people boasted, at the Tower of Babel. We're going to build a tower that reaches to heaven. Watch what we're going to do. And God says, oh yeah? Let me show you something. He was watching in the days of Noah when the generation became so evil, so ugly, that he said, this has got to stop. Let's turn on the water. When man becomes corrupt, it's like milk that soured or meat that has spoiled. The Hebrews, I was surprised this week to learn that the Hebrews use the same word for sin as they do for roadkill, a dead, smelly animal. It's the same word. That's how offensive man is to God. The New Testament would reply in Ephesians 2, we're empty, we're dead. It's all, it's all of mankind until Christ came along, right? There was an ancient Indian fable that I read about a couple of weeks ago. I just had to share this with you. It's a fable, a little kid's fable, of a turtle. And the turtle wanted to fly. So he convinced the geese to hold a stick on both sides in their mouth. And then the turtle grabbed hold and he flew with them. And a turtle could fly and he was so pumped up about it. So look at this. I'm the only turtle that can fly. And so people on the ground said, Oh man, isn't that the coolest thing? 
Look at how smart those geese are. And the turtle said, It was my idea. It's all about me, right? I want the credit. I want to be noticed. He too had become corrupt. His main purpose was self. Why, why in spite of the evidence do people say there is no God? Well, I, I suppose they have reasons. Sometimes they've just been mistaught by other people, right? Influential people have taught them. And I read that article about the Harvard chaplain, and I prayed for students at Harvard this week that they can see through this philosophy and look at evidence and listen to their heart and may God just work in their heart open a way for them to come to know Him. And if it's true at Harvard, you know it's true for every one of the colleges that our kids attend in this church today. It's the same. And we need to pray that they'll have wisdom to see through the lies Sometimes they've been mistaught by others. Sometimes they have a hard time, like C.S. Lewis did, wondering why there's injustice in the world. It's a legitimate argument. Why is it like that? It's fair to ask that. Sometimes they've been hurt by badly who, by people who claim to be followers of Jesus and have mistreated them. But quite often, in their heart of hearts, they just want to go away from God and live as they please. Corrupt and vile. This is this, this is God's analysis of the human heart. And this is David's analysis of the enemy who was coming to invade. The Harvard chaplain says, we don't need God. We are each other's answers. Not so fast, friend. Man has fallen and man is always contending, always competing. So verse four says, will the evildoers never learn? Those who devour people as men eat bread who do not call on God. This is a group of people that are self-centered. They're vicious. It's a dark picture of the human race. Those who have rejected the Lord, they're corrupt, vile, selfish, lost, and in need of a Savior. And David gets inside the heads of these godless invaders. Outside, man, they look like they're organized And they look like they're pretty tough customers. I mean, look, they've conquered other nations around. They're intelligent. They're strong. They're well-equipped. They're carefree. They're independent. They're on a mission. And it's surprising to find out that on the inside, they're not like that at all. They're described by one word. Fear. When God shows up to defend His people, they're filled with dread. That's what it says in verse 5 and 6. They, the enemy, were overwhelmed with dread when there was nothing to dread. God has scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame for God despised them. Uh, God has a pretty clear track record for those who oppose Him. It's not a very pretty picture. David doesn't link any historical event to this song, but he's, in his mind, I believe, reviewing past victories, like the time, eh, just pick out a couple, like the time God made the sun stand still. 
and threw the opposing army into great confusion. That's in Joshua chapter 10. Just, you got a problem? I'm just going to stop the sun for a little while. You guys continue your destruction of the bad guys. Go for it. Or the time the spies went into the mighty city of Jericho, and Rahab said of her city, A great fear of you has fallen on all of us who live in this country. We're melting with fear because of you. Our hearts are melting in fear because of you. Man, this is the inside. On the outside, it looks strong and intelligent and tough and organized. We're in trouble. we got no shot against this vast army. But God was just warming up. They chose to make God Almighty their enemy. Their own guilty conscience condemned them. In their heart of hearts, they admitted, they admitted, maybe I'm not all that. Maybe there really was a mighty God. Maybe I am accountable to Him. And they were overwhelmed with dread. Proverbs 28.1 says it like this, The righteous flees, though no one pursues. But, another big but in the Bible, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That's you guys. That is you guys. This is the great contrast. Fear because you oppose God, or boldness because you trust in God. That is you guys. Even kids at Harvard who come before this great intelligent group of people who are deniers. You can be bold as a lion. So David encourages his people even more with the previous victories. He says, look, here's God's record. You, you oppose God. Here's, here's what happens. God has scattered the bones of those who attacked you. That's why we can be confident and bold. We wonder where the money's going to come from. We wonder how we're going to get through this illness. We wonder how this drama is going to be resolved in our family. We wonder about all this stuff. And, and God's got this track record. He scatters the bones of the enemy. You put them to shame. Uh, I, I, what was he thinking of? I wonder what was he thinking. Was he thinking of, uh, when Pharaoh's army was washed up on the shores of the Dead Sea. They and their chariots and their horses and their equipment. Was he thinking of the 31 kings that, that Joshua and his armies defeated? 31 and oh, how about that for a record against the enemy kings? Psalm 53 is a great song. It kind of reminded me as I was working this week on it of the song Elevation Worship. Uh, song uh, Rattle. You've probably heard of that. We've done it here in church a few times. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? You're not going to run out of miracles anytime soon. Just ask the stone at the entrance of the tomb. (laughs) That's a powerful song. It's Psalm 53. This is what happens when you oppose God. When has God ever been defeated. Trust Him. Once in Second Kings chapter 18 and 19, there was an army of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that surrounded Jerusalem. And on and on it goes. They were gone. Overnight, they were gone. 
It just goes like that throughout history, God's history. He's unafraid. He's unflinching. You oppose Him. You're in trouble. You just see how God rescues His people. Inside, the godless man is filled with dread. He lives in fear while God's people live in confidence. I hope you live in confidence today. This is a song of deliverance, of rescue. It was probably hard at that time for David to write and sing this song to his people because his people might be saying, "Ah, I don't know. We heard about this army that's threatening us. What, What about it? It was hard to see how it could work out. But the crisis was real. But the threat was strong. But David is praying and singing, God, show them. Show them how you do things. Show them your history. Show them what you're going to do. Show your power again. Deliver us again, just like you've done it before. And so David concludes with great confidence. Verse 6, When God restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice let Israel be glad. You see how he said that? If it had been me, I'd have said, if God, <laughs> if God comes through for us, nope, there's none of that in David. Not any of that in David. When God restores the fortunes of Israel, you guys can pray in boldness and confidence. You can ask like you're asking your dad for help. There's two groups of people here. Those who've surrendered to the Lord but are in a very desperate situation, they trust Him, and sooner or later God will restore the fortunes of His people. And there's a second group of people, those who for whatever reason have come to the conclusion that there is no God and have chosen to go their own corrupt, vile way, you need to look very carefully at your future. You've ignored God and wonder why you're missing His blessing on your life. And you wonder why you're worried and filled with dread. Here's the answer. You haven't surrendered your life to the Lord. You've chosen to reject God. You've gone down your own path. And I would just ask you to look at the results. How's it gone for you? How are you doing? Is it working out? Or would you be willing to put it in reverse and go back and say, "Ah, I blew it. I've tried to make my own decisions based on my own prosperity, my own selfish will. Would you start over? The Lord allows you to start over. And it's a pleasure for me to ask you to start over. I got nothing on my own, but I stand on the promises of the Lord who said, if you'll repent and be baptized, He promises to wash away your sins and give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have I got a deal for you? Someone died and left you a fortune. And He wants to offer it to you today. But you got to give up the reins of your life. you got to surrender to Him. And that's what I'd ask you to do right now.